0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. This week on our panel, we have Nader Dabbit. Hello from Warsaw. Warsaw, wow.
1: Yeah, out here wrapping up a conference or so. Oh, nice.
0: Is it a React Native conference or something else?
1: It's a front-end conference. I'm here talking about React, actually.
0: Oh, okay, cool. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, I am not in Warsaw. I'm still in Utah. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Charlie Cheever. Charlie, do you want to say hi? Hey, this episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable, popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at reactroundup.com/kendo-ui.
2: I'm Charlie Cheever, calling in from Palo Alto, California, and I work on Expo, which is a uh, Basically, the easiest way to do React Native writing just JavaScript. Nice.
0: And and I think we really want to dive into Expo. I don't think we've talked about it on this show, have we, Natter? Yeah, not on this show. No, we have not. Uh, we'll go ahead and dive into that. Before we do that, I don't think we've talked about React Native for a little while. And I know there's a whole other show on that that, that Natter runs. But uh, real quick, we did run across, or at least I ran across your article, Should We Use React Native? And um, I thought that was kind of an interesting, you know, run through, you know, should I use React Native? And I I guess Airbnb announced that they were sunsetting their React Native app in favor of other things. So you want to just kind of walk us through that process and how you make that decision and then we'll dive into getting going with Expo?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, So I've been working on this project in the React Native space for a couple of years. And so we've talked to, you know, tons and tons of users, um, both of these Expo and both of these React Native without using Expo. So I feel like I had a lot of sort of anecdotal data um, and some aggregate data. And what happened was that Airbnb was one of the most prominent users of React Native because they're a big company that everyone's heard of and is you know, doing really well, is really valuable. And then had, had a couple of really smart people working there on React Native, in particular, this guy Leland Richardson and also this guy Spike Bream. And they were written a lot of the important libraries and given given a lot of talks at conferences. And so a lot of people in the community looked to Airbnb as sort of one of the main leaders or thought leaders in the space outside of like Facebook. So then one day they posted this announcement that they were sunsetting all their their React Native efforts. And I think that like freaked out a lot of people in who are thinking about using React Native because, um, you know, whenever you see somebody that's thought of as like a leader's, space, like moving away from something or walking away from something, that seems like a really bad sign. But what I'd seen is basically something a little bit more nuanced. And so I wrote up this post basically saying, like, here's how I think about whether you should use React Native or not. And the gist of what I said was basically that there's sort of two kinds of projects that can involve React Native. What Airbnb was doing and what sort of the Facebook main app is and stuff like that, or what sort of in the space people tend to call brownfield apps. And in contrast, the vast majority of projects that use React Native are just like projects from scratch that use React Native from the beginning. And those are sort of what people call like greenfield apps. And in general, greenfield apps tend to work out really well. And brownfield apps are really, really hard because you're trying to negotiate like uh, making these two worlds work together. And there's all kinds of little problems that come up when you're doing that. like. Maybe you do some React stuff and you store a lot of the state in your application in Redux, but then all of a sudden you have a, some code written in Swift and Java that needs to access that state, but you don't have an easy way to like dive into the JS VM and pull out exactly what you need. Very, I mean, and, you know, if you're a smart engineer, you can figure out some way to do it, but all of a sudden you have like another complicated layer, more moving pieces, more things that can go wrong etc, um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Whereas if you build something entirely in React Native, in a lot of ways, it's basically just as simple as a web app. And especially if you use just JavaScript, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, there's not that much that can go wrong outside of your JavaScript. That's the gist of of what I wrote in that blog post, I think. Although it's worth reading if you want more details.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll get a link to it in the show notes. So, Do you
1: have any idea of how much of the app was React Native? Because I heard different things like this. it was not much or it might have been uh, like a substantial amount, but I wasn't sure exactly. Yeah, I don't
2: know either. Uh, I You know, I don't work there and I but I, I heard some of the same stuff that you did where like I think that some people out in this developer community thought that most of the app was React Native because the people who worked on React Native talked about it a lot. But I think that in practice, it was maybe only, you know, 15 to 20 percent or something like that. But I really don't know for sure. Uh, I wasn't involved in that
0: directly. So did you work on their React Native
2: app? I, I don't know if I got... Oh, I have no involvement. I just, uh, okay. I've, I've never worked at Airbnb. I only just know, know those people socially and okay. from conferences and stuff like that. And uh, read stuff on Hacker News and heard stuff. But it was a big deal in the React Native community. And so that was why I felt like I needed to write a blog post about it.
0: Yeah, I find it interesting that this stuff happens and then it's like, everybody panic. Yeah. And I
2: actually thought that would cause more of a big panic, but it really didn't seem to like, you know, for maybe a week, there was some sort of dulling of momentum. But then mostly people went back to using Rack Native if they thought it was a good choice. And mostly people thought it was a good choice for the same reasons
0: they had before. So that was actually pretty interesting and encouraging in a lot of ways. Cool. Should we switch gears into Expo? Do you want to explain what Expo is? Sure. So if you think about what
2: React Native is, it's basically like a way to write views and stuff like that in JavaScript. But it's also a way to sort of integrate those with a native app. And you can write uh, you know, Swift and Java code and stuff like that. But for many people, you don't need to to worry about that. And you really just want to write uh, just JavaScript. Um, And so basically Expo is basically a project to make it as easy and as powerful as possible to write just JavaScript. And so um, we basically provide a client that you can get in the iOS app store and the Android app store the Google Play store that basically work kind of like a web browser for development. So you can just write some JavaScript, get it from URL, open it and make a change and work on it, iterate on it, et cetera. You don't have to open Xcode, you don't have to open Android Studio, you don't have to build all these things. And then to make that powerful, we make this whole SDK that includes like native maps, camera module, uh location, gyroscope, basically everything that you ever want to do in sort of native code. We have like a pretty polished, um, well-tested module that works across both platforms, sort of like a, a big standard library or Ruby on Rails or something. Mm-hmm. Um and so we think the combination of both those things lets people build a lot of stuff really, really quickly. So uh that's what I've been working on. And we've got you know, tens of thousands of developers using it every week. And um, a lot of cool things are made with it.
1: So if you look on the, the documentation for React Native, uh, there are like two different ways to create a React Native app. Um, the one that that is like front and center is uh, using the Create React Native app CLI. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that CLI and like what it has to do with Expo and also maybe talk about um, the regular React Native CLI and the differences there?
2: Yeah, so... Create React Native app actually just got replaced by Expo CLI. And so if you look at the docs now, it'll say just use Expo CLI. It's just a, the new thing. is just a superset of Create React Native app. Um, but basically, the origin of that was that we were talking to the React Native team at Facebook. And one of the problems that kept coming up for people in the open source community is that a lot of people would hear about React Native, think it was cool, go to try it, and spend an hour trying to set it up and like just not get there like they would especially android users would, would just kind of fall off and not be able to compile everything or get everything working and they wouldn't even get to the point where they were trying react native much less making a really informed decision about it because there's you know a lot of the way that developers work is they reading hacker news listening to podcasts like this and then they try something out when they hear about it and if it takes an hour two hours three hours to get something up and running That's pretty bad. I think things have gotten better over time, but that was a big problem early on. And so one thing that we knew Expo was really good for was getting started. And so uh, we decided to work with them to make Create React Native App sort of modeled after the success of uh, the Create React App project. And so the idea was basically that uh, to get you to Hello World working on your phone as quickly as possible and in a way that would also open it up to Windows users and Linux users who wanted to build an iPhone app and things like that, while at the same time not limiting you at all from doing anything you would do with sort of raw React, like not locking you into using Expo or anything like that. And so we basically worked with them to make something uh, like that, and that's been replaced with Expo CLI now, but that also can transition to, into a vanilla React Native project. In general, uh, I think we have A lot of people working on, uh, or not a lot of people, but like two people working on the the Expo CLI experience and one person working on the um, Expo Kit experience, which I I can go into in a minute. Sorry, I probably shouldn't mention that without explaining what it is. And we just keep trying to make that better. A big goal for us is over the next couple of months is basically to make it so that that sort of... Expo CLI experience is just better in every way than the React Native CLI experience. I don't actually know the status of it right now. I don't, uh, there's been a lot of turnover in the React Native team at Facebook, and I don't know exactly who's working on what right now. But but just one of the focuses for our team is to try to make it as easy as possible to get started making new things. Um, And so that's going to be a big goal for us. And the idea is basically that you don't need to open Xcode, you don't need to open Android Studio you don't need to compile that stuff, and when you have sort of a pretty powerful, complete set of models that you can do stuff with, you know, pretty much all the hardware on the phone, and you know, all the sort of graphical things that you want to do, um, like video playing, maps, uh, stuff like that. Then you can actually do almost everything that you want to you want to do without having to to deal with Xcode and root Studio, which I think is pretty important because. Um, Kind of an interesting thing that I've noticed is, like, if you talk about, like, competition for React Native, probably the first thing people think of a lot is Flutter because Google just had this big conference around it, et cetera. But when I look at what's going on with our developers and just, like, other developers that are thinking about using React Native and stuff, the biggest competition is actually web in a lot of ways where a lot of times people just decide, oh, like, I don't have time to make a mobile app because that's hard, that's complicated, whatever. And I need to get something done quickly. I need to be able to show it to somebody who's halfway around the world. And I don't want to deal with test flight or hockey app or any of that stuff. And they already know React. And the the number of people making websites is way, way, way bigger than the number of people making mobile apps. And that includes, uh, you know, mobile developers, I think. So we think that the more we can make it as easy or easier and as accessible um, to do, like like mobile development that feels native um, that'll that'll actually be one of the most important things and i think we're like kind of halfway there right now a lot of things are are pretty easy but um, a lot of things are still a little bit gnarly because mobile's just kind of always been that way and there's a lot of historical cruft
0: interesting so um, so what kinds of things are included in uh, expo like well, if i get started is it you know you mentioned rails for example and one of the powerful features of rails was just like you know, generate this controller. So you go generate a component or something, or how does that work? So
2: um, when you get into the weeds, the Rails analogy
0: breaks down. But
2: really, so let me run down just like some of the things that Expo gives you. So one of the most important things is like OTA updates. Um, So just for free, you get over the, ability to over-the-air update your app um, with like a configurable policy. So what that means is that like you can build uh, a version of your app for the App Store, stick it in the Play Store and the iOS App Store. And then if you decide that uh, you need to, like, run a sale or something, you need to put a banner at the top of the ad, mm-hmm. uh, you can just change your JavaScript, um, you know, get push it, and then run an expo publish, which is just like one command that takes a few seconds. And it'll just push a new version of your JavaScript up to the cloud. And the next time you use open the app, it'll try to download that in the background. And then the next time they open the app, it'll have that new version of the code. Or you can configure it to wait for the new version of the javascript to be downloaded when the app boots Um, just kind of you can make whatever trade-off you want there Um, so that's something that people can set up on their own using like microsoft code push would be the normal way to do it but it's kind of built in another thing that you get kind of for free is dealing with like fonts and other assets in a way that can also be pushed over the air and then you also get you know a bunch of things like video player uh native maps facebook ads google ads pretty complete and robust camera module a barcode scanner and integration with popular analytics packages. A way to do like linear gradients and blurs. A complete GL implementation if you want to do like WebGL type stuff, but without opening a WebView. SQLite access. Um, ways to access the secure store if you need to store like um, credentials. And basically, if you go to the docs page, there's about forty different APIs that we give. Face detector uh, access to the file system. Things like that. So it's kind of just like a complete set of almost every native API that you'd want. And the alternative would be for each of those things, you'd typically find something on GitHub and sort of add that into your React Native package. One thing that's tricky for people about that is that uh, React Native comes out with new versions you know, every couple of weeks or so. And typically when people build these native modules, they build them against whatever version of React Native they're using for their project when they build it. And so a lot of time. Ta- Like people don't keep updating their version of React Native that they're using for their app, and they don't keep updating the native modules that they're working on. And so a lot of the native modules out there uh, in the wild only work for certain ranges of versions of React Native. And so it can be pretty tricky to try to keep up with the latest version of React Native and also use kind of all the native modules that you want. Um, and so people run into upgrade problems all the time, and so we make it pretty easy to upgrade between the different Expo SDKs, and we make sure that all the native components that we ship with are all work with, you know, they all work together and work with that version of stuff. So Sounds that's, like a lot. Yeah, there, there's uh, we put a lot of work into stuff, and we we have a pretty like vibrant community of people that really they like really like being in this zone where they only have to worry about writing JavaScript, and they don't have to worry about compiling swift and compiling uh android stuff and fiddling with you know gradle configuration files and other weird stuff like that and i think a lot of our users are students and people like that who uh, i think otherwise would just you know be too intimidated to be able to to do mobile projects um but we've seen like people be able to make something in a weekend that looks and feels like a real mobile app and they can get into the app store really really quickly and then we think we provide enough stuff now that you can actually build pretty powerful legit stuff and you know as we keep adding more and more stuff we're getting pretty close to where we think we've got comprehensive coverage of pretty much everything people need the three things that are kind of missing are background location tracking bluetooth and payments payments is going to be hard because apple and google kind of want to have a direct relationship with whoever's setting up payments but the rest i think we'll get to probably in the next couple months
1: and when you say payments you mean like uh like apple pay and those types of things yeah i mean we 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 have a
2: request tracker where people can vote on different feature requests and and comment on. them. And we found that like people want Apple Pay and Android Pay. They want in-app purchases on both iOS and Android, which are slightly different than Apple Pay and Google Pay. Like in-app purchases, like in a game, you might make a digital purchase and Apple takes like a 30% cut. Whereas if you're running some sort of laundry service, that's like a physical real world thing, Apple Pay will like charge your credit card and Apple won't take any cut at all. Um, and then people also want like Stripe integration. We actually shipped Stripe integration like a year ago, but we had to take it out of our app because we weren't charging anyone for anything. Um, and Apple was looking through. Um, uh, some user had had built an app and put it in the App Store shortly after uh, we put Stripe integration into the into Expo library, and uh, Apple sort of flagged it as like, "Hey, you have." Stripe uh, Stripe library included in, your, included in your code, but you're not collecting payments. We're not going to accept your app in the app store, so we backed Stripe out of uh, out of the whole thing. And we've been sort of thinking about what the right approach for payments is. Interesting.
1: Um, so, like, it seems like Stripe, the like that they could implement that themselves, though, right? Isn't it just a API call uh, or something like that? Or yeah, you like-
2: can do some things using just JavaScript, and you can also just eject to using Expo Kit, which is basically just a regular React Native project, but with um, you know the whole Expo library included and our OTA library included. Brent, who you guys might have heard of, because he's kind of a React Native celebrity, uh, is working on making Expo ExpoKit really, really good, and uh, just sort of a super smooth process. I think what we'll probably move to is uh, making it much, much easier to add Native code if you want and, and not feel like um, that you're making some departure from stuff. Like the way things work now is that if you start with an expo project, which a lot of people do because it's in the docs and it's it's you know the fastest way to get started if you're going to do anything interesting and you decide you want to add like Stripe integration or or something that requires a native library, you run this eject command, which was inspired by the create react app eject, mm-hmm. um, which, and it's, it's fine, but it sort of forces you to make this choice where then you've now committed to, you know, now managing your project in Android Studio and Xcode and doing your own builds and et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of people just, that's scary to them and they don't want to do it. There's some quirks about it. So basically, I think we're going to try to make that as smooth as possible and as easy as possible, but also made it so you can kind of go back and forth between those worlds um, without having to make like a choice that feels like a fork in the road that you have to commit to.
1: Yeah, very cool. That would make a huge difference. I know a lot of people um, kind of make their decision between Expo or not Expo based on the fact whether yeah. or not they can update that code. So that would uh, open a lot of doors. I right. Think, for more so that's,
2: that's something we're, we're excited about.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, Natter,
0: I'm, I'm assuming you've used Expo. Justin joined us. Justin, have you used Expo? Hi. Uh, yeah, I have actually. Uh, sorry, they're doing some work on my roof. I'm going to
3: give them a minute to to finish. <laughs> you <should go> ahead. <laughs>
1: I was going to say, like, uh, going back to um, some of the stuff he was talking about, uh, Charlie was talking about with JavaScript developers uh, coming on board and that being easy uh, to use Expo um, versus, like, uh, coming into the native space and fiddling with Xcode and Android Studio. You know, I found that... There are just a huge ecosystem of of JavaScript developers, of course. I mean, everyone kind of knows this. But like it seems like that the reason that React and React Native have become so popular really is one of the main reasons is because you're just writing JavaScript. And um, coming into React Native, you're able to do a lot of stuff without having to learn a lot. But the second that you start opening Xcode or Android Studio for the first time, if you're not a mobile developer, it gets extremely intimidating. And um, I teach a lot of people React Native. And I would say around 50% of the classes that we teach are using Expo. And it just makes the process uh, getting up and running uh, much easier. Because if, we, if we're teaching a room of native developers, we're probably not going to go with Expo. But if we're teaching a room of JavaScript developers or even a mixture of native and JavaScript, we always go with Expo because it just makes it that much easier. Um, you kind of don't have to really you know mess with any of that stuff.
2: Yeah. That, that's pretty much what we found also. Like we, I think most of the people who end up using us come from the web development community. I think actually one of the things that's tough for uh, React Native and even Flutter and stuff like that is a lot of people who come from the, the native developer side of things, they don't even want to do React Native when they can write native code. Like a lot of, I mean, so, some do, obviously, or else the project wouldn't be a thing. But when you've spent years of your life learning these skills and you are trained to care about like these tiny, tiny little performance things, and have been burned in the past by you know people telling you that HTML five would be good enough for your UI and stuff like that. Um, it doesn't surprise me that that it it's there's a lot of skepticism that come from native developers. I think that that's starting to change as like a lot of uh, a lot of apps that I think people don't realize are built in React Native are built in it and things like that. And it's, it's just sort of like as the tools get better, it's harder to tell. Like uh, Christoph Majera, uh, who originally worked on React Native Project, but now is in Poland. Uh, he has his own firm, Software Mansion. He built this library called Reanimated, and he also built this thing called uh, Gesture Handler. And those really improved the the touch handling and gesture recognition performance, and then also the animation performance. So one example of this, like one thing that people have complained about for you know years with React Native is that if you do navigation in JavaScript, it doesn't feel quite right. And that was true for a long time because first versions of the JavaScript-based navigators didn't perfectly mimic the way that the sort of native operating system level things were doing it. But using this new reanimated stuff that uh, lets you sort of write richer descriptions of how animation should happen um, and lets the sort of main thread take care of those and putting the work in, um, Brent Vatney's done a ton of work on React Navigation over the last six months I would say that like rack navigation is now almost impossible to tell from like, like a a native navigation solution. And so, you know, as each of those things get like, you know, there's probably five or six things like that or 10 things like that. And as each one gets chipped away, it's, it's just starts to make more and more sense to use something like rack native. And then as phones get faster too, that's a big deal. Like a, the newest iPhones could probably even run an HTML5 based UI and, and have it feel pretty good in a lot of ways. So if I want to get started with Expo what approach should I take? Yeah, I mean if you just want to try it out the fastest thing you can do is go to snack.expo.io and that's kind of like CodePen or JS fiddle or CodeSandbox but for react native. And so then on your phone go to Google Play Store or the iOS App Store and just search for Expo or Expo client. It has like a little carrot icon. It should be the first result and just download it on your phone. And then what you can do is they'll just be like a QR code on the screen on the on which you should visit from your computer, and you just scan that QR code in on your phone. On iOS, you have to go to the camera because uh, we aren't allowed to put a QR code scanner in the mm-hmm. app for some reason. You know, within ninety seconds or something, you should have you know a hello world thing on your phone, and you can type in a in a little editor on the in the web page, and every every keystroke that you type will update your app, and you can play around adding in different components. We have a drag and drop thing in the side. Actually, we might have removed that recently. But it's really easy to stick in, like, you know, video component, image component, and just see what it's like, play around with stuff. The other way you can do it is just go to the React Native docs, and they basically just tell you how to make a new project using Expo CLI, and that'll make something that's more like a traditional React Native project where all your files are on your hard drive. You probably use something like VS Code or Emacs or Vim to edit them. You just run, you know expo CLI in it it makes a new project then you just run npm start there yarn start whatever it starts up the environment gives a url and a qr code which is just an encoding of the url and then you'd open that up in the expo client um pretty much the same way you just get from the app store open it up and you can start
0: working on your app immediately this episode is sponsored by sentry.io recently i came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps then i asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io.
1: So you mentioned uh, Christoph uh, Magiera. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Yeah, oh, not 100
2: I don't get that exactly right either.
1: Um, and then also Brent Batney. It just seems like you have like a steady stream of like really, really good engineers that work with Expo and you have uh, you just end up a lot of times. It seems like you all have some really awesome people working with you guys and girls. I'm kind of curious, like and Evan Bacon as well, and then a few other people that I can't even remember uh, everyone. But like, what is uh, what do you feel like goes into like running a company to bring on those those sorts of people? And this isn't really around Expo. This is just kind of a question that I have in general. Like uh, yeah. because you see certain companies struggling to hire uh, these types of people, and then you have other companies that have like a wealth of, of these types of people. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious, like if you have any suggestions to people listening that are looking to uh, improve their um, their organization and their culture.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I definitely feel super thankful that we get to work with some of those people that you listed that are awesome. The way that we ended up working with uh, Brent, who was the first person that we ended up working with, was James and I. Uh, James Eday, who started the company with me, we, we'd been actually building something like React Native on our own to try and attack this problem um, before React Native came out. And then when React Native came out, we sort of saw, hey, there's about 20 people at Facebook working on this. And it seems to have gotten this really positive response when they announced it. There's a lot of momentum here. Let's just like, not try to fight that. And let's just like, go work with that and do everything we want to do using that technology. And so we just, basically both started looking at React Native and James actually became sort of the number one open source contributor, um, over the first couple months of React Native being an open source project. And Brent was, I think the number two or the number three. Uh, I don't remember. I mean, just in terms of number of commits, I, I think they're both just w- were very important. And so we got to know Brent just through working on stuff in the repo and doing stuff like that. And then, um, he was working at a sort of a consulting firm at the time and, uh, We asked him for a little bit of help on a project where we the two of us just didn't have enough bandwidth to do it, and we actually thought he had the particular skills that would do a better job than we could. And we just had fun working together, and we kind of went from there. Christoph worked on React Native at Facebook, actually, Um, and so he's just like one of the most experienced, knowledgeable people. And so uh, Software Mansion is like a separate company, but we uh, we're interested in a lot of the same things, and so we just and everything with Expo is open source, and so. and, you know, all the stuff that he's working on, re- reanimated and gesture handling stuff that actually works with sort of any flavor of React Native if you go and install it. So, but it's been fun to be able to work with him and some of the people that software mentioned at various times. Some of them uh, have helped us out a lot with with working on Expo, Stanley and Tomasz especially. I think the best thing though is that a lot of the people who are like this, they do like working on libraries that sort of everyone can use. And... I think we're not quite there yet, but we have this vision of this world where it's really, really easy to just imagine something and then create it and then get it to people that you want to get it to as quickly as possible. Once they kind of can see the possibility there, it's, it's actually a fun and exciting thing to work on to do that. And probably for, for a certain kind of person, more interesting than working on like client projects where, you know, managing like an employee database is really interesting the first time you do it, but then the second time or the third time uh, might not be as interesting. Evan was working at a design firm, uh, and he was, was building a bunch of prototypes of designs for clients using Expo. And he was just was really enjoying it. And so then, when we ended up talking to him because he was tweeting a lot about Expo, he was interested in just like working on making Expo better so that you know all the things that he thought could be even better about it, he could just make it happen. So he's just been doing that. I don't really know what the secret is, but I feel very <laughs> lucky. We have some smart people. You've talked a little bit about the people. How did the project get started? Um, the project got started because, so what I did before this was, um, I started this company Quora, which was just in the news for losing a hundred million people's passwords or something like that. Um, <laughs> you're famous. Yeah. Uh, but it's basically like a question and answer site, but it started yep. in like 2009. And, um, two, two interesting things about that relevant to this. One is that we built this version of it, like a very first version of it as quickly as we could, like in a couple of days, like, maybe two weeks or something. And it was okay. And we had like a handful of people using it, Um, but it wasn't really, it didn't feel awesome. It didn't feel like something that we could really build a company around. And so we started to try to make changes to it to make it better. And it was just really painful to make changes to it because we had written code as quickly as we could without spending any time setting it up in a thoughtful way or anything like that. And so um, the guy I was working with and I just kind of Sat down one day and we we're kind of like, this is not fun to do, and we're also it just feels like it's really slow going. We've both like made websites for ten years and have all these opinions about how that should happen, and we so we actually just deleted all of our code, started over, and spent like six weeks just building a new web framework, um, which was a lot like React actually, where it was the idea was that we would have components and they would be composable and reusable, and if you change data. Um, this system would be smart about updating every everything so that like the data would, you would write like a render function and then, you know, when state changed, it would update everywhere. So really, really similar to React in terms of its, um, you know, philosophy. Uh, the biggest difference was that it was written in a mix of Python and JavaScript and the way that data would propagate would be all the way from like the database. So if you imagine like, instead of having your state be in like Redux or something, but it was literally in like MySQL, Um, but would propagate all the way from the server to any client. That's kind of what it was. And that was a really important thing for that project because we ended up only having like four people build pretty much the whole project. A big part of that was that we were able to bring on a designer and she was able to build like so much of the site herself just because she found it really, really powerful to work in this framework. So that just made me think that there was a really big lesson here in terms of like, if you build a really good way to build stuff that can unlock all kinds of good things. Um, So that was something in my head. And then uh, another thing I did was like manage the mobile teams where we were, you know, in like 2010, we decided we should have an iPhone app because everyone was on their phones all the time. And it took like nine months to build an iPhone app, even though it was just a native scaffolding wrapping it, you know, a a web view of our mobile website. I just thought that was crazy that it took us like nine months to build that. But then I thought, okay, well, at least when we do our Android app, we have a design. We've already made you know hooks into our mobile website so that it can like be embedded inside this native view. This should just take a few weeks, and then like ten months later, we finally had an Android app because Android is gnarlier because there's fragmentation and all these other things. So I just I remember after um, when I was leaving Cora, uh, or after I left, I was just thinking like, man, that was a really painful process. And even then, it didn't feel like it. Still felt like a web view, even though we put months and months and months of work into this mm-hmm. thing. But then all the ideas I have for anything interesting to work on have like are like mobile applications. Or, and so I don't want to spend nine months of my life building a prototype of something that only works on iPhone, is super brittle, and can't be changed. And so then I just decided somebody needed to shave the yak and uh, like make, <laughs> it, make it better to make mobile stuff. So I, I started working with my friend James to kind of figure it out. We started building a our, our thing that was kind of like React Native Before React Native came out and we knew about it. So then when React Native came out, we just said, hey, let's like, React Native seems like a solution to part of this problem, but like, let's try to solve the rest of it, which means like making it so you don't even have to worry about Xcode and Android Studio and stuff can up, you know, basically everything that's good about the web. Let's make that part of, uh, you know, native development.
3: So I'm really interested in um, tech startups that specifically start up around like an open source technology or something that's like, you know, a free tool or something. So how do you approach like making a business out of something like this?
2: So I think that like, this is kind of a project that we started on faith that if we just did something pretty valuable and important for the world, that we would be able to figure that out. Um, And I would say like like, right now, we don't really make uh, very much money because we haven't really focused on that because we've just been focused completely on um, trying to like solve the problem. I think there's basically the way I'm thinking about it now, which, you know, no one should think of me as an expert because we haven't figured it out yet. But I think there's um, two ways that you can do stuff like this and turn into a business. One is you can make like a network, which is how um, like Instagram and YouTube and uh, all these other kinds of things work. And those can be open source projects. Like Reddit was open source for a long time. It may still be. I don't think so, though. And because like, it was the biggest, like you, in theory, could make a clone of Reddit and set it up, but really because Reddit was this network, it, you know, then became this big thing that they were able to monetize through ads and Reddit gold and other kinds of things that where you have like network effects going on and you can monetize your sort of end users. I think that in a slightly different version of the world, uh, something like Expo could be monetized that way. Um, but it's pretty tricky in the world we live in right now, because um, Apple and Google, but especially Apple really want to kind of assert, fine green control over how the app store ecosystems and all those things work. And they basically want to make sure that they make all the money off collecting payments or distribution of apps and anything like that. And so um, the other way that I think you can make money is um, just doing like services like GitHub, Twilio, Those kinds of companies are great examples of that. Um, So right now we provide some services. um, We do them mostly for free, but some of them are like, if we charge for them, we could do an even better job of supporting them and also just like give people more features and things like that. So i will probably in the next few months start looking at making money by just like making it completely possible for people to do everything they would want to do with Expo for free or on their own, you know, by you know, building stuff themselves, running their own things, but then we'll, you know, let people get like better supported, higher higher volume, like sort of more professional level of our our services um, in a paid way. And it's a tricky balance because it's really, really important to us to get every, like, we want everybody to be able to use this. Um, we don't want to knock it out, but um, we do want to, we do think that there's some services that are like, make sense to be paid in the same way that like if you are um i think most people aren't offended that github provides all this free public repositories but then if you want to do like private stuff for your company you you pay them something and i think there's there's ways to strike that balance that feel feel pretty good that'll probably probably be something we spin up and you know i'll tell you how it goes in a few months
3: <laughs> <laughs> awesome
2: it is really important that we make this into a sustainable thing um and not just something that's like you know, a science project.
3: Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of like conversations around sustainability in the software ecosystem, especially around open source things. It's just like got all these people putting all this work in and yeah. like, really valuable tools and companies mm-hmm. are definitely deriving value out of it. So it's like, how do we, you know, continue this without like right. burning people out and ending up with like good
2: projects or just unmaintained or, or whatever. Right. It is really complicated. One sort of funny thing I've seen is that One thing that's kind of funny about React Native is the things that are sort of really good and not so good about it, kind of, you can map back to what Facebook cares about. And the things that Facebook cares about, like not at all, and that they care about really, really a lot are the things that aren't good in React Native. Because the things they care about the most, they don't, they have some like crazy, bespoke, totally native thing that, you know, a hundred engineers have worked on. The things they care about the least, they don't care about at all. But the things that are, like, in the middle, they, they actually have a lot of resources behind and things like that. So that is just kind of a f- funny thing that I've noticed. Um, it's kind of tricky, too, because, you know, it is true that a lot of people get a lot of value out of open source. But I think if you made a lot of this stuff something that you had to pay for, people would probably write their own stuff instead of, you know, paying for it. There's also a really tricky balance where, like, if you don't make if for something like Expo, if we... I looked around the space and saw these things like Xamarin and Titanium and a bunch of other things that I, I can't even remember the names of, and you probably haven't heard of, where they basically tried to make sort of like paid cross platform toolkits. First of all, like you would see these blog posts that were like, this is why I hate Titanium. I, everything was going great up until this point. And then all of a sudden, my app would crash all the time or run out of memory. And I had no way to fix it because the software was an open source, so I couldn't even figure out what was going on. And, you know, even if I could figure out what was going on, like I don't really have any good way to patch it. And so now I'm just like pulling my hair out and I think I either have to like just give up or change my whole technology approach. And that's just like incredibly frustrating. And also like when you have this thing where you have to pay a bunch of money to get a license to even use something, how do you get documentation, tutorials, et cetera, out there? Like the best source of... um, so much knowledge about Expo. It's just that we have these forums where users write in with questions, and a lot of times they answer each other's. Qu- I mean, sometimes we jump in and answer questions, but basically, um, you know, without having thousands and thousands and thousands of people using it all the time, we wouldn't have that body of knowledge. Like a lot of these things, we don't even know until they get discovered, and then somebody comes up with a technique to to do stuff. So I don't know where that leaves us, but I think it's good that there are enough people out there that. That do care enough to do make stuff open source, and some companies have are you know pay people to work on things that are open source, but there's definitely holes. Yeah, and I don't have the answer.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned, and they're a sponsor of this podcast, but uh, and it's a competitor to React Native. But NativeScript is one of uh, one example. Oh yeah, there. you know they they've released it for free. You can use it with I think it works with Angular and Vue right now. I think you can do React on it too. But yeah, then they offer a whole bunch of tools to deploy it and build stuff with it. But you totally can just do it on your own if you really want. Yeah. And they don't uh, handicap it at all. Yeah. Um,
2: I haven't looked, I've looked at NativeScript a little bit, but I think uh, we ended up just, we knew some of the people who worked on React Native and we ended up making, just just deciding that was the right thing to bet on because we had a small team and couldn't couldn't try everything all at once.
3: NativeScript, uh, especially in its early days, was a little rough around the edges. It's, it's yeah. a really fascinating project, though. Like, it generates a JavaScript binding for literally all of the native APIs, every build. So it's like, you can declare pointers in JavaScript. <laughs> like, weird, wow. weird stuff like that. But it's, it's kind of a cool project.
2: Yeah. Um, one thing they had early on that I know React Native didn't for a long time was the ability to just do synchronous calls into native APIs which is actually really important for a lot of different things that you want to do and impor- just so it's important for the performance characteristics that you want to get um but i think all these projects probably converge towards things that look pretty similar to each other over time
3: yeah for sure uh so just quickly going back to something we talked about earlier my coworkers are pretty big on react native and like we did like a conference with like the react native team like in and uk earlier in the year so our react native team was really kind of created by like native developers like that's that was their background so it's like they they kind of like jump started the project and and helped kind of evangelize it and you know we're realizing the benefits from that because of like all of our uh integrations between like n- what is like traditional native developers and our web teams and stuff but I- i'm really interested in like how you think about selling Expo to like a native developer.
2: So there's the conversation of how you sell something like native script to a native developer. But let's just- Two angles that I would come into that with. One is that we just need to do some work to make it so that you can, it's easier to write native code against Expo. And then the other thing though, is I think that like the way that most things like this get adoption is people try something when they're in a hurry or they're just curious about something and then it works for a use case and then they just keep going with it. And then all of a sudden that side project is now an important project and there hasn't been a reason to rewrite it into something else. Or, and you know uh, I'm thinking back to like when I was working at Facebook uh, in like 2006, 2007, 2008 um, AWS came out and like, Kind of made a stir in the office, and we had a lot of people like a pretty significant chunk of the technical staff there was like running down to the data you know, people who were like were people who just like managed the machines and like were running down to the data center and etc. And if you wanted to get a new machine, you had to like ask the VP if you could have you know four boxes to do X or Y or Z. And so, AWS seemed like a cool, exciting idea, but like the idea that you would take this service that was running and where you had a whole bunch of things you want to do with it and like move it over to some new thing that was in beta that like some other company owned no way but then like starting a new company in 2009 it was like i don't know how to hire a person who you know works in a data center i don't know how to like hire a devops person and I'm like is there a way we could avoid doing that oh we can you know we can just get a box in the cloud we'll probably have to switch off of it soon but You know, and then it turns out, oh, okay, now I've got a year and we're still going fine. It's two years. And okay, we probably maybe we'll never have to switch off this. And that's, you know, so you sort of see somewhere around 2008, 2009, pretty much every startup that started after that point, unless they had some sort of weird security concern is using cloud services, but everything before it wasn't. And so I expect there'll be something like that where students and people who just like are practical or in a hurry. Um, for the most part, are using technologies like React Native and stuff starting sometime around now. There'll maybe be an old guard of people that like, don't want to switch over, but they'll just slowly over time become overwhelmed because people are just in a hurry. They don't want to write stuff twice. And like, you know, I even think, the way I think about it now is like, when we started this project, we sort of thought, okay, it's crazy that people have to write stuff in Objective-C or Swift and then write it a second time in this whole different framework in Java. Like, keeping those things in sync is crazy. And doing the same work twice just seems intuitively dumb when you want to have the same product on both. And that, I think, is reasonable. But in reality, when I talk to people now, they actually have, like, four problems, not two problems. They need an iOS app, an Android app, a mobile web app, and a desktop web app. And so one thing I really like about React Native is that, like, if you know React, you can basically share a lot of code across all those platforms. Whereas like, if you're a native developer, you're really only hitting like one of the four platforms that are important for a product. And that's fine if you're making like Halide or like an iPhone camera replacement application or something like that. Or if you're at one of the four or five, like if you're YouTube, you can afford to have a hundred people work on your iPhone app, a hundred people work on your Android. I mean, I don't know how many people work on those things, but if they wanted to, they could afford to but there's only a handful of companies in the world where that makes sense and so i think that it'll just out of necessity like you'll see this happen and you can see like I uh somebody told me uber eats is built in react native that's something that probably like started later than uber started a side project has a pretty big service area needs to be on ios and android sort of made sense for them and like if it hadn't worked they would probably give up on it but as long as it's working they'll keep going with it
1: Yeah, that's some interesting insight. And like, I've been doing training, you know, for about two and a half years for React Native. The companies that we're dealing with during maybe the last year, year and a half have been um, largely enterprise companies. So like Microsoft, American Express, Warner Brothers, Salesforce, all of the large banks, uh, we've worked with most of those, Amazon. Um, It's like, you name it, like any of these big companies are actually, not only are they trying it out, but they're shipping Um, There are multiple apps here at Amazon, like where I work now, Amazon Web Services um, is where I work, but within Amazon that are either React Native Greenfield or they're using React Native. I'm not sure which ones I'm allowed to talk about, so I'm not going to mention any of them in particular. But I found it super interesting that shift is actually happening right now, the shift that Charlie was mentioning. And it's like you hear about certain companies that are out there writing blog posts about it. but you don't hear about a lot of these other companies that are just being productive with it and they're not talking about it. Um, but it's a, it's kind of like a paradigm shift that's kind of like happening. And But it is it is out of necessity because these days, uh, there's two big things that have happened, I guess, that have kind of shifted the needle, I think. First of all is developer salaries have gone up uh, a lot over the last five years or so, um, which has you know driven down the number of available engineers because the, the best ones are getting paid a lot of money to go work at these big companies. So if you're a startup, if you're a small to medium sized uh, company, it's like impossible to build across all the platforms that Charlie mentioned earlier. If you need to deploy on desktop web and iOS and Android, it'll cost you a million dollars a year at least just to have four competent engineers. That's not including the backend or the DevOps and all that stuff. So just, uh, it's like an enabler of uh, of velocity of developer velocity. It seems like just React Native in general. And then expo just kind of adds additional abstraction on top of that, I guess. So I'm a big fan if you haven't noticed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of React Native. Yeah. So um
3: yeah, at Artsy, we we really have balled into React and React Native pretty hard. And it's it's been great. So we try to we've been trying to get to that point where it's like a write once run anywhere kind of scenario. But it seems in practice that that's actually There's a lot of nuance to that. It doesn't actually work out as well as you would hope most of the time, in in our experience. So, we find that the biggest benefit is just the um, there's not as much of a cognitive shift between working on a React Native project and working on uh, a React Web project. It's like, Mm -hmm. so for us, um, we do try to use certain components, um, but like the the amount of shared components we have is actually relatively small. Um, and it's, sometimes it can be a big lift to get those components to, you know, run like, because just like platform restrictions, it's like, um, you know, certain elements aren't, don't exist in, uh in React Native. So you'd have to, a lot of people choose to use like libraries that kind of abstract that away and just, we, we haven't. So generally we'll have a component that has a shared interface, but the implementations are separate. Yeah. Um. So at least you're using it in the same way, mm-hmm. uh, but still, just the just the like lowering the cognitive overhead to be able to switch between projects means yeah. that we can have people who have been traditionally doing web development work on a a, a native right. app without you know having to do a whole lot of like onboarding and you know learning new languages
2: and figuring out platform nuances and stuff. Yeah, like that. that reminds me sort of of I remember there were, when they announced React Native, there was a slide they put up on the presentation near the end that sort of said like, it's not write once, run anywhere. It's learn once, write anywhere or something like that. And that was cute. Um, and I think it's like, it makes some sense. But I also think, I think the world's like, mo- like it's taking time, but I think it's going to get to the point where you can actually like kind of write once, run anywhere. Because when, when people say write once, run anywhere, and this sort of Derisive way where they say it never—it's never worked. They're mostly talking about how like Java was hyped up in like the late '90s, early 2000s as like a "write once, run anywhere" thing, and they like use that as an example of like a failure. But then you're overlooking the fact that like the web basically became this like "write once, run error platform that's like massively successful, and even now is continuing to extend its reach as like basically desktop software is becoming eaten by web software. And if you look at like almost. Every single piece of desktop software I now run, like VS Code, Slack, um, Discord, they're all like Electron apps, where mm-hmm. they like don't want they like don't build every. And I think that if you would talk to a developer who's doing desktop software six seven years ago, they would have said a lot of stuff where it's like, I would find that you know there's some differences on Windows and Mac where I really want to do platform specific things, and the APIs are a little different, et cetera, et cetera. But like as the sort of standard standardized platform gets more powerful, more APIs are built out and well-tested across both platforms and stuff like that. I think, um, I do think things change and it's taking a long time. And there's a ton of, I mean, I look at the work that we've done and I look at all the list of APIs that we have in Expo, which isn't even complete yet and isn't powerful enough. And it's still f F-ton of stuff. Um, it's just like, there's a lot to do. Um, but it also reminds me of how like, when I was working on the Cora iPhone app and the Android app, there was a lot of people who talked a lot about how iPhone apps should be really different from Android apps. And like Google really wanted us to move the tab bar to the top instead of having it at the bottom because that was like the Android designs. And like just all these little differences of like in the, the design guidelines for each one. And, and people would say like, you know, Android users expect a different experience that feels like Android. And iPhone users expect a different experience that feels like iOS. And that idea is basically totally gone now. Like if you look at Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or, uh, I mean, Twitter actually might have some differences, but pretty much every app where they've built a new version of it in the recent time, it's like the Android app and iOS app, basically exactly the same thing. And I think that they're getting even more so every day. So I, I think that over time, we'll see pretty strong convergence. And there's still obviously like, you know, the thing you present on a giant screen that's using a mouse is going to be a little different than something you have on a tiny screen. Um, but like, Aside from like literally different physical form factors, I don't think there'll be much difference in the way that we build things in
0: you know a couple of years. All right, well, we've we've kind of reached uh, or we're getting toward the end of our time. Is there anything else that people should really know about Expo that we haven't discussed? Um, I think you should just check it out. Go to snack.expo.io and
2: you know it'll take you literally like two minutes and you can try it. So if you want to teach someone something or give them a demo of React Native or just prototype something, it's definitely the best way to do it, I think.
0: All right. Well, let's do some picks then. Uh, Nader, do you want to start us off with picks?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I finally published something to Egghead. I've been a member of Egghead as, an, as a publisher for like two years. And I recorded like a video that didn't go so well. So I never came back and tried to record again. But finally, my, my video series published on Egghead. And it's uh, it's like a 10-part series on building GraphQL APIs and applications uh, using AWS AppSync, which is the managed GraphQL service, which I work on at AWS. So um, yeah, check that out. That's been uh, really good. And uh, I mean, that's gone really good. I'm pretty happy about it. Like a lot of people are liking it liking it and stuff. Um, I'm, I have a book that I started uh, to read. Let me go ahead and pull it up off of my app because I completely, now the, the name is blanking me, but it's been pretty interesting. It's called On Grand Strategy. And I read a lot of of nonfiction books and this is like the most dense nonfiction book I've read in a while. So it's kind of taken me a while to even get through the first couple of chapters, but it's pretty interesting. It's kind of about like how leaders in the past have like strategized and like the different ways of thinking around doing things. So like if you're interested in, um, and like psychology and, and like how people think it's kind of like along those lines. So I'd check it out.
0: Nice. Justin, what are your picks? So I've got two picks today.
3: Um, One I think is uh, relevant. Um, So there's this project called RePNG. It's a really great project. It just turns React components into uh, PNGs. Um, So I've been using it because I'm uh, generating uh, this infographic email to communicate performance numbers to our our company. Uh, The graphics are all SVGs and a lot of clients Email clients don't like render SVGs very well. I'm also poking around with it to uh, dynamically render icons on React Native instead of doing SVGs, um, just having different size PNGs. Um, so it's a, it's a fun project. Um, so if you ever need a React component to an image, I recommend you check that out. The other one is uh, it's actually trending this week in GitHub, but it's called Dark Reader. So it's a Chrome or Firefox extension that makes every site uh, have a night mode. And it's phenomenal. It's like really, really great. Like most of the plugins that I've played with and do this sort of thing, like all the colors are distorted and it looks really bad, but pretty much every side I've been to, it looks great. So I definitely recommend that. And
0: that's my picks. Awesome. Um, I'm going to throw a few picks in. So some some folks that listen to the shows aren't aware, but uh, I do a podcast that I don't produce. <laughs> Um, with a couple of other guys, uh, we do a mastermind group. It's every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Mountain time. Um, and you can go watch it live on YouTube. Cause we, I mean, we basically start the call. There are only a few things that are kind of taboo and it basically is, you know, if it would hurt you to discuss it publicly, then yeah, then those won't go in the call, but everything else. And that's only happened like once or twice. So anyway, um, we did a challenge this last week. And the challenge was to get eight Pomodoros. So we're doing the Pomodoro technique. Uh, you can go look it up if you want. But essentially, it's uh, 25 minutes of uninterrupted focused time. And then you take a five-minute break. And then you go back and do it again. So Monday was just weird because I had a bunch of calls in the morning. So in order for me to get them done by noon, I had to get up at 4 a.m. And it's amazing how much you get done when you get up at 4 a.m. Uh, I, I just have to say, um, I have five kids. Uh, one of them's homeschooled. The other one's three. The others go to uh, public school. But yeah, uh, so there's always somebody here. Yeah, so it's nice just to be able to get up and not be interrupted. And yeah, I got a ton done. So uh, that's one thing I'm just going to throw out there if if you're looking for a way to do things. Um, I've had a few people ask me how I get stuff done. And that's one of the ways if I really have to get something done, I'll either work really late or get up really early. The other thing is, and this is... Uh, a product out there that um, you can sign up for free. And I've been using it for free. It's called Kanban Flow. And it's a Kanban board, kind of like Trello. Uh, but it has a built-in Pomodoro timer. So you can tell it, okay, I'm starting a Pomodoro and I'm working on this task. And um, anyway, so that's what I've been using to track my Pomodoros. And it's it's been pretty awesome. So i um, been pretty happy with that. Uh, I, I have been taking on tasks that don't take 25 minutes. And so some of my Pomodoro span, a few of them, then you can change the task mid Pomodoro and then just track against the other task. There's a video out there by John Sonmez and he walks through how he has Kanban flow set up to basically plan his week. And that's more or less what I did. So um, I'll get links to all of that in the show notes, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it at this point. So uh, Charlie, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I got
2: three picks. I'll try to keep them short because I think I'm only supposed to have two. But one uh, I already mentioned is uh, React Navigation, which is a library that's been around for a long time and was not that great for some of its lifetime, but is now very, very good. So if you already need to do navigation in React Native app, and you dismissed previously React Navigation, give it another look. It's it's actually very, very good now, and I think better than basically anything else out there. Um, Number two is, I also mentioned this, but if you are trying to sort of really give polish to your React Native apps, uh, check out Christoph Magara's libraries, uh, React Native Gesture Handler and React Native Reanimated. They really improve the animation and uh, gesture handling. And then the last pick I have is this video series on YouTube from uh, this European developer. I think he's in Switzerland, William Candelon and it's called, uh, like, can it be done in React Native? And he basically takes uh, a cool thing you've seen out in the world, like, you know, Tinder cards or Uber Eats or, or just like, I think those are actually not real examples, but like, you know, anything that's like a cool example from an app and finds a way to implement it in React Native. Um, and there's, a you know, a lot you can learn from these techniques. He does a really good job with the videos and they're really fun to watch,
0: kind of inspiring. Those are my picks. Awesome. Uh, if people want to see what you're working on these days or go check out Expo, where do they go? Yeah, uh, the best way is uh, on Twitter, uh, at Expo, E-X-P-O.
2: And I'm at C Achiever, And our website is expo.io. And um, we also have a blog on Medium. I think it's just blog.expo.io or something
0: like that. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, thanks for coming, Charlie. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. All right. Well, we will wrap it up and we will catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.